smá ró. Aron lítur upp, það er pláss fyrir Birkimá Sævarsson út í hæra megin. Vindurinn tekur hann hérna neður, tekur hann neður fyrir Jóa Berg sem að er gegn Danni Rós og Jói sem er setur hann að Gilva. Gilvi í fyrsta jóndaði, jóndaði og Kolbein, Kolbein, Veska! Sigtosson með fyrsta marki sitt á EM en ekki það síðasta Ísland 2 England 1 Hjeldu það ég myndu einhvern tímann heyra þetta Ísland 2 Jendutek Ísland 2 England 1 Það eru ekki 20 mítulinnar hér Ínís en við erum búin að snúa þessu leik okkur í vinn 2-1 fyrir Ísland Not exactly a graceful piece of production right there, but there's no way I'm listening to that lunatic screaming. <laughs> so we're just going with that. No, the, the video player I was using only has a volume like mute or on button, so I couldn't fade it. My goodness. It's funny that language makes it sound like he's saying the score is now 2-8. to eight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. So uh, we'll talk about soccer in a bit. Uh, it is episode 18, season 6. June 28th, 2016. We're starting to get into a little bit of a, a groove again. Now we got two uh, podcasts two weeks in a row, and I don't, I don't necessarily think we need to take off for the 4th of July or anything. We'll see. No, I wouldn't. Because by Monday, it's over. Right. right. Yeah, you watch the fireworks, and it's, it's not like Christmas. It kind of lasts. and It's just like an extra day off. Yeah, there's not a 4th of July season. Yeah, and it's not in the middle of the week. People are probably just go back to work on the 5th. Mm-hmm. You know, people will take long weekends maybe or something like that. But I would assume we'll do a show next week. Uh, last week we had Taz Mellis and Ad- Adrian Dater on. Uh, and today we're going to talk to a first-timer, Jason Concepcion, who's was a writer at Grantland, and now he's a writer at The Ringer. And he was also one of the um, – he wasn't a host, but – one of the experts, I guess, on the HBO show After the Thrones. Okay. Which was basically a show. You know, this is the cool thing about what Simmons has going right now. Is he's got a show at HBO. Then he's got a website. And then he's got a podcast network. Mm-hmm. And all of those things kind of work in a big circle. Which is, I think, what he always dreamed would happen at ESPN. But never kind of worked out that way. He's like, and basically what he did at HBO is he said, hey, we have this podcast about Game of Thrones, and you have Game of Thrones, and people don't understand what the fuck's going on in that show. <laughs> right. So why don't you let us create a show that can go on after Game of Thrones that would just be like a video version of the podcast we do. Sure. And you can air it on your streaming network. Yeah, he's like sports. Well, I mean, not that that's sports, but like version of Chris Hardwick. Yeah, so he got that to go down, and uh, Jason was part of that. He's also a graduate of the Berkeley School of Music. It's actually the Berkeley College of Music. I always say school. Okay. Uh, the Berkeley College of Music. He's kind of a guitar guy. We'll talk about guitars with him. We'll talk about Games of Thrones, Game of Thrones, and he's also like a cult NBA tweeter. You know, so we'll talk a very little bit of basketball with him. 
I didn't have the patience for another half an hour of basketball. We get to it at the very end. <laughs> uh, also, Stephen Hyden is on the show today. His book, Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, has been part of our book club. We'll talk with Stephen about that. Kind of an, avoid getting stuck in the Pearl Jam rabbit hole. Yeah. One of the very first chapters is Pearl Jam versus Nirvana. Nirvana. Yeah. But I didn't really get into it with him. We've talked about that rivalry in the past already. Right. So we talk about other things instead. It's not bad. Uh, we'll end the show with one last thing. Uh, we'll say goodbye to hiding in the book club and start to focus on the Frank DeFord book. And we'll get the show started now with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, so everything is happening at once in the NHL. But before we get to that, we got to backtrack a couple days. It was I was proud to say that the hockey world was in Buffalo and what was a beautiful weekend here. Mm-hmm. I think they had a great, great weekend for the NHL draft in Buffalo. I was really happy. Uh, it was nice weather. Uh, they really did a good job of kind of centrally locating everything in the harbor area there. Right. You know, the writers got to stay in the Harbor Center Hotel or the Marriott or whatever right there and just a quick, quick walk over to the arena. And The arena was packed and had a really cool buzz in it. Then the draft was everything we thought it was going to be until pick three. And then the Columbus Blue Jackets totally blew it. Yeah. And of course, of course, the team there to collect another draft miracle is the Edmonton Oilers, of course. Yeah. Uh, they, they There was a lot of shakeups at the top of the draft. I mean, at, like you said, after pick three. And that's good because another year went by. And I'm not saying I told you so because I didn't. I listen to the experts. Another year, where you're going into the draft, everyone's like, there's going to be a lot of moves at this draft. There's going to be a lot of moves at yeah, the draft. There, there was, was no, no movement, movement. No. Uh, so I guess the GMs decided to – I don't know. It's, it's weird to me when – I'm trying to think of an organization that can make that move. If an organization like Detroit makes that move, not that they ever picked that early, you think, well – They've historically maybe been they know great something. at scouting. Maybe they know something. But the Columbus Blue Jackets, like, where did they get off making that pick? It was such a consensus top three. Of course, they defended it by saying that they picked their number three, which, I mean, good for you, I guess. They, right. have, a, they have a finished GM, and I wonder if he just overthought it in the sense that he didn't want to pick a finished kid. And Yeah, who knows? But, I mean, I don't know. He ends up in Edmonton. He'll be able to play on the wing with McDavid for the next 15 years and torture the Western Conference, I'm sure. Right. Uh, Columbus. Ugh. Sabres get Nylander. I love the, love the way they were aggressive. They, picked, they didn't pick an 18-year-old who they knew wasn't going to play next year to fit the need of the team next year. People wanted him to pick a defenseman so bad because the 2000. 16 Sabres need a defenseman. Right, right. But unfortunately, the defenseman they would have picked wouldn't, wouldn't have been play, there in 2016. Right. So I thought they picked the best player that was available when they picked, and I think that's the way you should always do it in the top 10. It's a fun pick, too, in that his brother plays in Toronto. Right. Rival, so. Yeah. 
So I was happy with what the Sabres did. No, no qualms there. They I've heard the people say he's late. maybe the flashiest player in the draft. Like I would agree. Highlight real goals. So yeah, it's fun. I, I like it. Um, but overall, great week in the draft, and obviously the big winner is Toronto because they got Austin Matthews. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so as of everything happening, kind of as we're recording here on Wednesday afternoon, sort of three enormous things happen. So yeah, I think we'll that happen now because this is the type of thing that always happens the second we hit right, stop the second on we the finish. Yeah, so. We'll start with the easiest one and that's Steven Stamkos is staying in Tampa. There's a lot of people in Toronto and Buffalo who dreamed that Tampa would let him become a free agent and walk away for nothing. That was never going to happen. Yeah, I mean, got little... he had a say in it. I mean, I don't understand why he took it this far. Uh Guys never get this far. There's I always... think he got everything he wanted, though. Well, probably. He got eight yeah, years. I would assume so. You know, he maybe took a little bit less money, but he got eight years. Yeah, I would say he took a hometown discount on the money part of it for sure. I mean, and he, he also got a no-movement clause. Right. That's huge. So. Uh, Toronto is obnoxious when it comes to hockey rumors. They think every player just wants to play for Toronto because right. he was born somewhere near Ontario or whatever. But, uh, so, I mean, that's a... I was hoping the Sabres would get him for eight and a half million dollars. I would have done that all day. But I don't think he would have came here for eight and a half million dollars because we can't give him sure. eight years. No, I mean, so but you're I, looking at paying him ten million. I I don't have any problem with. I I wouldn't have had. I would have been excited about the idea that the Sabres went out and got the big fish and paid ten million dollars. But I always would have been nervous that five years from now we'd regret it. Yeah, maybe. But I mean, Chicago people may have said that too. I mean, they have their cups already, so I guess maybe you can. You're be talking a about more... resigning their own guys, though, right? You're yeah. not. You're, this is bringing in. Another, I mean, if we're going to break the bank in four years to resign Eichel and Reinhardt, sure, I'm on board for that. Right. That's not that. This. My thought the whole time with that was, if your biggest problem is you have too much money because you have too many good players, then I I would fix that. Like the Sabers don't have money tied up. Or hopefully at the time, they wouldn't have money tied up in guys like Matt Molson anymore. So. I never worry about like what the rich guys pay, and maybe we'll talk about that in one of the other trades later. It wasn't that. It's more about just the cap and would you have to say goodbye to guys, or would it be a mistake? I'm sure you would. Like, I mean, would, you be LA, would you be L.A. and saying goodbye to Lucic because of the horrible Dustin Brown contract you signed? Now, again, that's their, right. they signed their own guy, yeah. a, a guy who was a captain on a cup-winning teams there. You know, but they're saying goodbye to guys now because of that contract. And I would have worried about that with Stamkos, but I would have taken on that worry, like you said. It, yeah. Yeah. It's more something you say when you didn't get them. It's like, well, at least now we don't have to worry about that. And right? I think every you know? year when you look at NHL, well, the now defunct NHL numbers or general fanager or one of those sites, and you look ahead to like the next season and you look at the free agent list, it's like, whoa, that's a crazy good unrestricted free agent list. But by the time you get to this point, there's never any of those guys left. They're all signed. This year, I mean, he got he got within 48 hours of that. The other thing about the money with Stamkos is there's no state tax there. So $8.5 million yep. is more money than it is in Buffalo. Sure. Or in way, way more, more than, than Toronto. Yep. So uh, you can't just look at $8.5 million and think he took a huge discount. Yeah, that's a weird thing with a league you know. in two countries, the, the yeah. Canadian dollar. So, Stamkos will stay in Tampa. I'm not surprised. I will say that. Now, no, if something... I had to put my money on something, I guess I would have put it there. It's just guys don't usually take it this far. All right, let's do it in order, I guess. Uh, first news broke that Edmonton traded Taylor Hall to New Jersey. 
for Adam Larson, uh, which is an interesting trade. Don and I have kind of debated a little bit. I'll give my take, then you can give Don's. Basically, they traded uh, one of their best forwards for the team they traded him to's best defenseman. Right. Uh, so, like, if you're thinking in Buffalo, man, we should have done this deal because we don't think no. a guy we don't know of is very good. Well, you're kind of wrong. Larson is really good. Uh, but the Buffalo equivalent of Larson is Ristolainen. Right. If Edmonton was going to do this trade with Buffalo, they wouldn't have done it for Zach Bogosian. Sure. It would have been Ristolainen or no deal. So they got apparently the D-man they thought was best in return. I would say that Larson has been a bit of a disappointment, though, in terms of his draft stock. But he's been in the NHL, like, literally since he's 18, you know? like Yeah, it's... it's so, I, I don't know. I think it's one of those picks that you really got to make sure you get right because you know what Ty- Taylor Hall is. He's dynamic. Yeah, I mean, Andrew Buckholtz, a uh, friend of the podcast, tweeted, uh, quote, offensive talent like Taylor Hall, millions of those. What we need is a defenseman with nine career goals. <laughs> like, and then he's like... Right. Put- Larson... You know, Pirelli. but Larson maybe isn't about goals, right? And that's what I—that's where it's a little bit hard, probably for. An, and sometimes a defenseman like him will develop offense later. Sure, like a Chara. Maybe. Like Chara was not an offensive stalwart in the right. beginning of his career, but the offense comes along. I just think with a trade like that, you really got to get it right. And I know Edmonton is kind of swimming in forwards, but I'd be so afraid as a GM that I just. Traded away Sagan, like, like the way Boston. Did. Right here it says Larson is signed through twenty twenty one at four point one six annually. So it's also very reasonable. That's a decent contract yeah. for a guy that projects to be a top pair blue liner. Right. So if he can play at a top six or a top pair level, which is his projection, he's maybe been a little below that so far. Um, and you can get him at that price, you have a chance to win the trade. The problem is, is you're always going to trade a guy who's going to be in more highlights. Yeah, I just wish there was a way to... Uh, Taylor Hall is always going to look like the better player. A caller on WGR called up and said, I literally can't make that trade on NHL 16 or whatever. Like, they wouldn't, the GM wouldn't take that trade. I just... If I'm Edmonton, I want a little bit back. I want a couple draft picks or something just to make it feel a little more even. But that uh, said, I think... We, and we talked about it before when we were discussing it. That trade at least makes sense from both teams' point of view. Now, this uh, Oilers GM is also the same GM who traded away Tyler Sagan. Which is, yeah. So here's a quote he made. I've actually made a few trades of good young forwards, so that's something that I won't shy away from. This is in April 2015. <laughs> the Sagan trade was a trade that had underlying reasons that I won't get into, but he's a terrific player. He was our leading scorer. That's what I'll say about that one. In this business, you can't be afraid to make trades. Those are ways to improve your team. There are some good young players on this team. Doesn't mean that I'm going to trade any of them, but those are the deals you can't be afraid to make. I'm not sure if I'm him I want to jump out. I don't want to be the first one to jump up and talk about your past tradings. Of well, again, forwards. this was in 2015. No, right. Not a new quote. No, I, I get that, but even then... Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I would be af- I would be too afraid to make that deal. So I mean, he's not operating out of fear, so good for him. But I would be I'd be afraid to make that deal. It's a one that certainly looks lopsided in Edmonton's favorite or in New Jersey's favorite today. Connor McDavid was quoted as saying, "It's definitely a shock. Change is exciting, but it's upsetting to see a teammate, a dear friend, and my roommate go." I mean, that's I'm not going to say piss him off. He's not going to be ruined or right, anything yeah. by this. But I mean, 
that's maybe not nothing, you know. That, right. Interesting. So then the more confusing trade. Yeah, this the one puzzling trade of the century. Yeah. Uh the Canadians traded PK Subban to Nashville for Shea Weber. Great now, deal for like a one year, <laughs> you know, on the surface. Like, I have no qualms with Shea Weber as a player. No. I think he's fantastic. If you were a team ready to win now, I think Shea Weber is the perfect, like, old school guys would say, like, that's the type of guy, defenseman you need for a... If you were ever to add a piece like him at the deadline, sure. be like, oh my god. Yeah. And he is far from washed up. He's 31. Not washed up by any means. No. But, here's the weird thing. He's got a really insane contract. Yeah. He signed a 14-year, $110 million offer sheet in the summer of 2012. Yeah, this is back when general managers were kind of cheating. So they now, were... according to the news, there's no exchange of money at all. So it's contract for con- – this is a straight-up deal. So now yeah. the Canadians own Weber, who's 30. Yeah, he'll be 31 before the next season starts. Uh, they own him, you know, through 2025-26. Yeah. With it's... a cap hit of 7.8, which isn't terrible. No. His cap hit – the contract is so long, the cap hit is okay. Right, and the league cap will go up every year. Every but it's always going to be $7.8 million, even when right. you're paying the guy probably not much dollar-wise. No, right. The last three years are like $1 million a piece, and the yeah. last year or two are three uh, two years. But two that's the that. exact opposite of what you want as a fan. You want your owner paying a bunch and having a reasonable cap hit. Now, I know that that deal was signed before the CBA that made those type of contracts illegal, but I wonder what... Is this because he's going to be of retired? He'll be forty-one or something like that when that contract ends. I know there was a deal like that's why uh, the Detroit was on the hook for uh, Datsuk's salary it after the rule. That was after the rule. Okay, yep. that, anything, so none of that's retroactive. Anything signed before is gotcha grandfathered in. So they can't. You know, you're not going to punish a team with a rule that didn't exist when they made the. But you know, here's the thing I will say though about it. Are we sure P.K. Subban is as good as we think P.K. Subban is? I sure think so. The answer so. might be yes. Yeah, I, but I, I just stop for a second and think about P.K. Subban. He's very flashy, obviously. Yep. He's an unbelievable player on the power play. Mm-hmm. He can do too much at times. I remember a Sabres game where like, some, I think it was like Nathan Gerby made him look a little silly because he was playing with the puck a little bit. But I think more often than not... A 27-year-old P.K. Subban is going to be the guy. Yeah, I, I'm just trying to find anything for the Canadians here. I don't I don't get the trade. I think this is sarcastic, but James Myrtle, uh, he's a hockey writer at the Globe and Mail. This was retweeted by Down Goes Brown. says, the good news, Montreal fans, is Shea Weber comes with some cap recapture penalties when he retires. So I, I don't get it at We've all. We've completed today an important transaction, which I'm convinced will make the Canadians a better team. It's also one of the most difficult decisions I've had to make as a general manager of the Canadians. And Shea Weber, we get a top-rated NHL defenseman with tremendous leadership and a player who improve our defensive group as well as our power play for years to come. Uh, Weber led all NHL defensemen last season with 14 power play goals. This is a weird yeah, he is a, he is weird a numbers to guy, say. too. Weird I mean, thing for the GM to say. Sure. He's a complete uh, regard with impressive size and powerful shot. P.K. Subban is a special and a very talented player. Provided the Canadians organization with strong performance on the ice and generous commitment in the community. He is amazing in the community. Um, I yep. wish him the best of luck with the Predators. Now, this has to be a thing 
where PK hated Montreal or Montreal hated I think it's him, that. And the league must have known it. I mean, they they had to give up something. Shea Weber, like you said, is no slouch. He is a great player. But, I mean, like we've said, the, the contract, the I just age, don't understand, the, like, why you do it. Right. Like, you got to. Like, how does he make him better? I guess they're just saying he's better. Like, a rank. Right. And this is the type of thing where people talk about uh, team chemistry. And, again, I've never been in a locker room. So, that's not. I won't just assume that's nothing. But they didn't have a problem with chemistry when Carey Price was healthy. I didn't and they know were winning Subban was a locker room problem. Right. I, yeah. I have no idea. I don't know what Montreal hates about him so much or what they're so threatened by. But Well, that's what's happened so far. And I'm sure when we're back next week, well, yeah, the free agency will, will be, have been started. And there will be signees and billions of dollars spent. You know, and yeah, trades will have been made. That's so. what bums me out a little bit about this. And it's nice that Stamkos at least signed a reasonable contract with his hometown team. Like, if he signed a $10 million deal, then what does what Akposo sign for? Something stupid like sure he's 6 pumped. or $7 million a year? I'm sure he's pumped. And now he's the number one guy left. Right. So that, that was my biggest disappointment is, oh, great, now someone's going to go crazy for Akposo. He's a right. nice player, but he's not. So then you got to go one who's next. I don't know. I don't. I had the list out, but uh, yeah, it'll you be, probably don't want Akposo now because you're just gonna have to overpay for him. Yeah, like what? It, what is so reasonable? Probably Six million? go for the next guy. I don't know. I mean, the biggest UFAs out there now. This site sorts it by cash. Is Stahl, Brian Campbell, Thomas Vanek, Milan Lucic. So maybe Lucic is the biggest name out there. But again, and didn't I see that he signed somewhere or? Someone reported that he's agreed in principle to a deal with. Yeah, someone. I want to say though that he. Like someone else, like talked to Lucic about that, and he said that's complete. not true. And he dropped okay. some expletives in there the way Mula, Interesting. Lucic does. <laughs> Lucic was probably who I was thinking would be the next boss, but I was also kind of writing him off a bit. You know what I'd like to see now? If we're talking about what we want to see the Sabers, offer sheet Nathan McKinnon or something. Like do something fun like that. Like you're, you don't need first. You don't need. 18th overall first round picks for the next few years and you're thinking you're going to be good like i want to see them go after someone i heard someone bring up the suggestion of uh i think seth jones is an rfa i wonder what gmtm thinks about offer, offer sheets. sheets seth jones resigned today oh he did okay he did yeah he extended yeah so he's extended, right? no longer a rfa yeah johnny goudreau is an rfa right and the one thing they said uh, i heard jeremy white in the local he said you should be offer sheeting tons of guys because what it does is it makes teams sign guys to bad deals. Even if you don't get the player, if you don't right. get Johnny Goudreau, you make Calgary spend more money than they wanted to. Sure, it doesn't make you look good, but I don't know. I want my general manager not to care about that. And he I wonder, doesn't seem to. I wonder what his attitude about it is. Yeah, I'm, I haven't heard anything about it. That would be a good question for him. Uh, congratulations to our friend Kenny Agostino, who is a UFA. Did not get tenured by the Flames, which I don't understand why the Flames wouldn't tenure him but they didn't and he's thrilled he's tearing up the ahl right yeah he was I mean, their best player again led the league uh, led his team in scoring again in the ahl so i don't know what they wanted from him but it was never what he was giving him so he's glad to be gone yeah so good for him all right we talked last week about the soccer uh, and the soccer is winding down uh first let's talk about the copa america which i think was a successful tournament here um Although I was a little disappointed the U.S. game didn't sell out even when they were in the, what did they get, to the semis? or Yeah, to the semis against oh, really? Argentina. Yeah, that's a bummer. So, I don't know. The they got girls, crushed that game, didn't the they? The girls sell out. Like, the girls, 
They the do. Girls have an unbelievable gripe when it comes to salary yep, in soccer. Absolutely. They, they're absolutely the top draw yep. here. It's not the men's team at all. Uh, but they lost to Argentina, as we expected. And Chile beat Colombia in the semis. And I think that's about where we were last week. And uh, after that, Chile beat Argentina in penalties to win the Copa. And the big kind of news was, so Chile went first. Did you see this or no? Like No. Chile went first and missed. Goalkeeper saved it. So then Messi comes up and you figure, all right, Messi bangs his home because Messi's never missed I one s- of these. I saw your tweets. About you know, this, Messi yeah. bangs one home and then you're You get Chile chasing you the rest of the way. Right. Uh, and the pressure's on them. Instead, Messi sailed it over the net, Roberto Baggio <laughs> style. I mean, they this thing landed in the Hudson River somewhere. He wasn't even close. Um, and they ended up missing another one. And Chile, in back-to-back years, wins the Copa against Argentina in penalties. You know what's funny about this? And I've played soccer for years and years and years. I never understand drilling. the. I mean, these goalies I know are all world, but they're still guessing. You know, like... Go low post. Like, what? why do you have to – these guys kill it. Sometimes they kill it right at the goalie to try to cross them up too. It, so in response, Messi, who has now lost three finals in a row, the two Copas and the World Cup final, says that he's done with the national team. Oh, really? He's retired. <laughs> he just – they just can't win, and it's just not for him, and he's retiring. So – I'll give you $10 million, Don. Yeah. You only get the money if you guess right. Is he or isn't he on the World Cup team in two years? Oh, uh, I got to say yes. So you're not buying it? No. No, me neither. Because he missed a penalty shot? He retired. Uh, they're nowhere near. Just can't. Good, yeah. Can't can't get it in. Yeah. So congratulations to Chile, who is apparently a world soccer power now. Sure. That's uh, two years in a row they won that tournament, and they're like ranked number top five in the world. And FIFA's rankings. Uh, and then in the Euro, we're down to eight, including my beloved Italians, who pulled an upset out against two-time defending champion Spain. Uh, despite the fact that the you know this tournament has third-place teams advancing because they kind of jumbo-sized it mm-hmm. for money. They had it set up perfectly, same way Copa was. Then they wanted to expand to 24 teams. So they had it, you know... Kind of add this extra round, and Italy won their group and had to play Spain, right? You know, and yeah. there's other teams, you know, playing third. It's just a wonky tournament, and their reward for that is now they play Germany, who's the world champion. Another power, yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, the last winners of the World Cup. So, although they've done well historically against Germany, they never lost to Germany in a knockout game in a major. But that could end. Germany's better. Italy's an under or much uh, overachieving team at this point. I'd be fine with their. This is as far as I got. Uh, France is the host, and if Italy beats Germany, they likely play France, unless, of course, Iceland, who we played the highlight, can pull another miracle and beat France, which I doubt because France doesn't choke like England does. <laughs> so that's where I'm at with the soccer. And then third thing, I was just going to mention a bunch of little things. Uh, the NBA had a draft. Um, it's a kind of a boring draft after the first two picks Simmons went one Ingram went two kind of died out Buddy Heald ended up in New Orleans which is I think a good spot for him although Jason disagrees later and uh, Andrew Luck 
signed an extension today. Yep. Uh, Roger Federer advanced in Wimbledon, which is underway. I heard his first round was against some guy that like ran a tennis school or something. Seven hundred and seventy second in the world, and that guy was like, "All right, I'm going to give it a go again." And then he's matched up with Federer, so yeah, good for him. Although he did get to say he played Federer, yeah, he made a miracle run from seven seventy second in the world to that. Did he win a game against him? It wasn't six zero six zero six zero. It was not. Good for him, man. He can always hang that up on his head. Took a couple games. I do from... believe it was straight sets, but it wasn't sure. 6-0, 6 Yeah, it'd be a miracle if you took yeah. a set from him. So, yeah, so I think that's good. I'm happy with where we're at. Anything else you want to add here in three minutes? No, picks? we ran out of music. All right, let's take a break and come back with uh, Jason Concepcion from Grantland. All right, our next guest is from Bethpage, New York, and is a graduate of the Berkeley School of Music. He's a staff writer at The Ringer and is one of the experts on HBO's After the Thrones. He often tweets about basketball. He grew up loving Eddie Van Halen and is making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Jason Concepcion. How's it going, Jason? Good. How are you? Good. How are you? Really good, really good. Beautiful day here in Buffalo. You're in the city? I'm in the city. Is it hot there? Like, is it uh, one of the typical it's, summer, smelly, hot it, New York days? <laughs> um, it's getting there. It's not It's not yet um, the fully, like, maw of Satan hot that um, right. New York City can be, but it's getting hot. Yeah, I think that's uh, something people, unless you've been there, like... On a ninety degree day in July or August, you're not quite prepared for it. You know, like people from Phoenix, they're like, "Yeah, it was 120 today, but it's like a a, right. a dry heat." Or, it's, a, it's a dry heat, right? It, there is a such thing as like a New York City heat, and, and it's, it has a smell, yeah. which is weird. It's just, I don't know. It's interesting, but not not as interesting as some of the other things we could be talking about. Uh, first of all. Um, I've always been such. I've always been fascinated by the Berkeley School of Music for some reason. Sure, this is such a cool place. This is why I played that Dream Theater cut, just because I'm pretty sure they formed there, or at least uh, I part- think they're actually from Long Island. Dream yeah. Theater, if I recall correctly. I know. Um, did they form? I think they may have formed there. Is that true? I think. There's- but I think they. I think they're all from Long Island, also. In in addition to forming at Berkeley. Yeah. So. I know you're a big guitar guy. Um, what what was your main instrument at Berkeley? Guitar was guitar. guitar guy. Yeah, yeah. How often do you play? Still, how often can a writer and Game of Thrones expert still be able to sit down with the guitar and play? I mean, I can play. What do you mean? Like play? How often you know, do for, I still play? How I mean, often do you play? I'll, I'll pick it up. I pick it up a few times a week. Yeah. Um, Is it kind of but in terms you? of like. In terms of like shredding out, yeah, I need to work up. I would need to go into like training camp. That makes sense. That makes sense. What did you love most about the Berkeley College? I guess it's college, not school of music, too. Yeah, I mean yeah. the the thing about Berkeley, and I like, is kind of it's kind of a scam in the sense that what? Well, I guess there's different tracks. Like, if you want to be a player, like you want to be a really good player. Um, 
Berkeley is kind of a scam because in a sense, what happens is if you're really good, you drop out like after a year or two years, you make all the connections you need to make. Someone's like, Hey, this person is good. And then you get like hired to back, you know, Cheryl Crow or something like that. Like that's what happens if you're really good. Right. Um, it's almost like leaving early for the pros, leaving early <clears throat> one and done type of thing. Oh, yeah. Right. But I mean, but now they have like, they have like music business classes and they have, um, production classes, which also is kind of like, like if you have a computer, um, and some pirated software, um, the way that audio quality is not really, um, you know, audio, audio quality is not so valued as it once was. Um, and so many people are listening on headphones that it's like, I mean, there's plenty of like successful artists out there slash producers who don't ever have to go to college. So in, in, in a sense, it's a scam, but it's also like a really, it's a, it is a great music education. The important thing about it that you figure out after you like go $100,000 in debt is that <laughs> really it's just about you should just more important than going to your classes which is important, don't not go to class, but like the most important thing is just to meet people and to talk to people and to like network with people because those are the people that are going to go out and like ostensibly do something and like, so that's what you should do. Yeah. Um, I went to SUNY Fredonia. All but, a scam. Yeah, I went to SUNY, Fre- you? SUNY Fredonia, which was a, is a, has a huge music school. Um, you know, it's a state school, obviously it's not a private school, but it seemed to me like everyone who was there for music was going to a music teach be a music teacher and I was always thinking like, Man, where are all these people gonna teach music? You know. Right. Uh, uh, but why not purchase? Why didn't you get a purchase? Isn't that the other good one? Yeah, well I went I went for communications and it's about right. forty five I actually went to Syracuse first, which you know, and then I got pretty sick and I needed to come a little bit closer to home. So that's why I switched to Fredonia. But a lot of the other people, yeah. people there were, um, you know, there is a huge music school there. So, and I guess it's yeah. good. And Petrucci, and Poitnoy, and the bass player are all <laughs> class of '86 at Berkeley, and they form the core of the group there. So, it's kind of hilarious. I mean, there's like, in terms of like, like, you know, thread guitar guys. Like, it's there's a long history of like guitar heroes like at Berkeley. There's, you know, Steve Vai and right. Joe Satriani, I think. And then Joe Satriani would go on to, like, teach various uh, notable Bay Area guitar players who would go on to form Primus and Kirk Hammett from Metallica, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's, like, I mean, when I was there, it was just, like, a thousand guitar players that, like, underrates. Like, more than, it was probably, like, I don't know. I don't know what the student body is, but there's probably, like, 65% guitar players. That's when I realized, oh, this, fuck this. What the hell did I do? <laughs> I think guitar, I mean, I think there's, they always they always say, like, you know, like, if you're so great at something, you'll, you'll, the t- your talent will rise to the top. But I think guitar, it's such an uphill battle in the sense that there's got to be guys who we've never even heard or seen who would blow our minds. There's got to be so many of them in guitar. You know, oh, that's you I go, always think you about You go into that. the subway in, in New York. Yeah. Like, you're like, oh, wow, you're fucking great. Right. Like, 
this is a bad racket to be in, I guess, because you're you're playing in the subway and you're better than ninety five percent of the people like you'll ever hear. I've always been fascinated by Paige Hamilton from a band named Howlman. I don't know if you know them. Like they're pretty popular in the nineties. Well, I guess popular in the nineties. And then they had uh, they, there's uh, some notoriety because the singer dated uh, Paige Hamilton dated uh, Drew Barrymore for a while. Now I always said that was a really funny period because there'd be like the tabloid articles and they would mention that he was in this band called Helmet and I was always thinking like the person writing it was like who the hell is Helmet, you know? But right. you could go see them now playing like this really small club and you watch Paige Hamilton play and it's like oh my god this guy is like from a different world, you know? And then you can go to, like I'm a huge Pearl Jam guy and. Like Mike McCready, he's from like a different world, like the way he plays. And I don't think anyone really thinks of Pearl Jam as a band with one of the great guitar players of his era. But I mean, Mike McCready is Mike McCready can, can, can get on it. Mike McCready oh is God. very like, he's a very Stevie Ray Vaughan guy. Yeah, he's bluesy. Um, yeah, he's got that. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. I, I mean, would, I hate yeah. to, like, I'm not a fan of John Mayer, like as a personality. Or his music, but there's another guy that can actually. He went to Berkeley, you know. There's another guy that right. can actually really, really play, and I don't like really anything about him, um, other than his taste in watches, I guess. But like, um, <laughs> yeah, there's a guy that can that can actually. And he, and he wears really a play. nice. He wears a nice watch, huh? He wears several. Like he's his watch collection is, by his own accounts, um, valued in the tens of millions. Wow, that's amazing. He's, like, really serious about it. I, I would say that um, in terms of, like, he's known as the um, kind of, like, the guru of watches for kind of, like, celebs of a certain age. Like, he's a, ta- he's a legitimate tastemaker in watches. Like, I would say that his cultural impact in watches far outstrips his cultural impact in music, which is a weird thing. That is very... Like he's, he's, he's a known watch expert. That's amazing. I had no idea. I had no idea. Yeah. He's quite the coxman as well. I have to give him tip of the cap for that. Well, I mean, by his own accounts. <laughs> okay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're always more of a coxman by your own accounts than others anyway, though, right? Yeah. yeah. So, but seriously, like, look yeah. up, like, just Google, like, John Mayer watch, and then watch a video of him talking about watches, and you'll be like, oh, shit, this it's actually kind of it's like there's something hypnotizing about how much he knows about it. I know nothing. He thought about watches. very deeply about watches. Wow! All I know is they tell time. Yeah. Otherwise, I couldn't tell you much about watches. <coughs> they're a, yeah. they're a reliable place to watch. find the time. That's about all I know. Sure. Uh, I owe you. I owe you and uh, everyone at After the Thrones because I've been an enjoyer of Game of Thrones for years now. I mean, it's a Fantastic piece of television drama, by all accounts. Unfortunately, usually for the last six years, just about after every episode, my first thought would probably be, what the fuck just happened? Who, <laughs> who was that? What were they saying? You know, I would be like, okay, I know there's the Starks and there's the, the Lannisters and... But it just was so... I, it made me feel dumb, the show. You know, I just always knew it was above my head. I, I enjoyed it, and it's, a like I said, a badass television drama. But never did I really understand it uh, to the level that I do, which is still 
pretty novice until after the thrones and well, we appreciate that i was curious like so obviously the origin is bill simmons gets hired by hbo and then bill simmons starts a website called the ringer and he's hiring people for that and then i guess at some point someone has the idea that there's this need for these shows to be explained to some higher level i mean t- what was the origin of after the thrones and how you became a part of it well, i think it spun out of like the the watch the thrones podcast that we used to have at grantland it's really just that simple i don't know i'm not fully aware of like the mechanisms behind the scenes about how that came to be at right. hbo right yeah yeah but because of um you know my involvement at grantland and writing the column it just kind of became kind of like a um an easy ad, I guess, just to involve me because we like Mallory Rubin, who's also who's an editor at The Ringer. We just have read the books. We know about the world, um, and it's also like a, it's level of there's a level of knowing the world that is kind of necessary to you know make the show, right. and so it just became you know it just became easy to to put us on there. It was really one of like the coolest things. The coolest of my life. It was really, it was really fun to do. You know, I think it's one of those things. If you told someone about it, they might kind of think, "Well, that's just just a different level of dorky that I'm not interested in." But then when you sit down and you see how it's applied, and like you guys just, you guys killed it. Like I, don't, I get some grief sometimes on as the host of this show for being a little bit too fanboy for the people who are nice enough to come on the show. But I'm really being sincere in the sense that whether it was Andy or Chris or you or Mallory, whoever was talking, I was always gaining, a, as you said, a, a new a new knowledge of the world and a better understanding. And I, I think I enjoyed this season uh, more than any since season one because, you know, there's that shift in I think it's season one where it's just sort of a regular medieval show. And then the mother of the dragons like walks into the fire and you think she's dead. And she comes out on the other side of it, and somehow right. she wasn't killed by the fire. And you're like, "Oh wait, what the hell just happened?" Like, where it's like where there's that moment where it's like, "Oh, this show is more than kings and and king slayers and fighting." There's this whole other part right. of this that I need to try to understand. And I always thought I was a smart guy, but almost nothing is has existed to make me feel dumber than Game of Thrones. And After the Thrones was really, I guess, the extra 20% maybe that I needed to, I feel like, at least understand uh, the show to a level where I'm kind of getting a better understanding of the alliances and the different kingdoms and the different parts of the map and that kind of thing. So it really was... Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, it was. I guess that's not a question, unfortunately, but it certainly um, existed to... I don't know. It just was a a hip like because I was the podcasts are always there, right? You said there was a podcast, but for some reason, right? Going to that level, it just I just never did. But making another... and there are, there are many other podcasts also. Like one of my favorite ones is um, History of Westeros is really good. Um, they go like deep, deep, deep into like battle strategy, et cetera, et cetera. I think like for me, like what is really cool about what Martin has accomplished with his books is just like the, um, 
like the verisimilitude of the inner reality. Like it, it's just very, very deep historically. Like with each character, I, you know, with almost every character you can be, you can, you can follow their family lineage back like for centuries and, and know why they've arrived at a certain place and all the world events that happened 50, a hundred 200 even a thousand years ago that like brought them to the the place they're at now and it's that is a an incredible accomplishment in world building and it's something that doesn't always come through like when you're watching the show just in terms of how many characters they are i mean it's impossible almost to to like provide that kind of like depth of information right um and so that's what we try to do, and I'm glad that people enjoyed it. A lot of people have said that they thought the last episode of the season was maybe the best hour of television that the show's accomplished. What did you feel about it? Yeah, I think it was, for me, it was the best. It was the most emotionally satisfying just because it paid off things that had been set up, you know, in the show, things that had been set up essentially from the very first episode, and then in the if you're looking at it from a book perspective, it's paid off things that had been set up 20 years ago when the first book was released. Right. So like, it's just really incredible to see that, to feel like, oh, wow, we're moving towards an end date just because, especially, you know, like, for, from a book reader's perspective, you know, it's like, it is an open question, like, when the series is ever going to be finished, the books, because it's just, like, endless delays, and, you know, you could talk about, like, why that's happening, but they're just, the books are... He, you know, the first book, uh, the second book, rather, came out, I think, like two and a half years after the, the its predecessor, and then it was like another two or three years for book three, and then it's like became like five years, and then six years, and now it's like, we're, I think we're going on um, five years and change now, um, with no new book in sight. There's supposed to be seven, and we're stuck on five, and huh. I think if you look at... And also the page counts of like like the last book was like over a thousand pages, so it's like it it it's like the story seems to be expanding when it really should be like winnowing down and like moving towards an end date. And I think that's also kind of like the jarring thing about about this past season is that, um, in a way, it's it's like a it's thematically it's conventional in a way that the that the series wasn't previously, you know, it's like Ned Stark gets his head cut off and you thought he was the hero. And now that's like, Oh my God, like what, what do I even believe in anymore? And then Rob right. Stark, the red wedding, his whole yeah. family gets, <laughs> yeah, gets murdered. And you thought he was the hero. And, right. like, what the f-? and <laughs> so it is different now in that in season six, you're like, okay, Daenerys, Tyrion and John are the heroes. And I'm fairly certain of this. And they're going to be there at the end. I'm pretty sure. Like, you're pretty certain of that now, and that's, like, conventional, that's a kind of conventional, like, fantasy storytelling that was kind of absent from the previous seasons, but also that's just a function of, like, having to end the story. Like, you, are you, like, in the books, I, I would, I don't want this to happen, but I would also, like, kind of not be totally shocked if George was just like, okay, you know, the White Walkers kill everyone, and, like, it's just right. animals <laughs> that inhabit, like, Westeros, like... But you can't do that, like, um, 
on television doesn't work as well on TV without like pissing everyone off. You know, like you have to be, you have to be more conventional than that. I think that's something that he's, I mean, this is just like armchair psychoanalyzing, but I I feel like he's really struggling with that because like to end the story in a way that is satisfying for the audience, he has to, in a way, um, subvert his subversions of the fantasy genre. You know, it's like he had built this story on, um, essentially like as almost like as a critique of genre of fantasy genre conventions, you know, of like um, the handsome prince is actually, you know, evil and terrible and the good leader is actually really naive, you know, like, and he had done all these things, um, you know, set up all these little uh, plot points that, that subvert um, traditional fantasy tropes. And now towards the end of the story, he's got to really employ those tropes to a certain extent, or it's just not going to be that satisfying, like an ending, you know, right. like it's, people are going to be mad. Like once you, but also that like makes it less, it makes it less, um, it makes the story more, pre- more predictable. You know, it's like when you, when you raise Jon Snow from the dead and then reveal that his parents you know, were it was like his his father was the former prince, um, and not Ned. You basically, you, thought, right, right? You basically yeah. are implicitly saying this character cannot is not going to die again. Like this, you know, like until maybe the end. Like you don't you don't do all that work and then reveal a, a mystery that's been set up since season one and then kill that character four episodes, five episodes, or a season and a half later. HBO has said do it. HBO said there's two seasons left. Is that correct? Well, I don't know. Yeah, I just I just know by the story that that I read, but it said um, anywhere from thirteen to fifteen season uh, episodes. So that's oh, not okay. even not even two full seasons, then. Right. Gotcha. Interesting. Uh, let me ask you. Oh, actually, I was going to ask you one more Game of Thrones question, but you kind of answered it, and it sure. was about the the scene in the um, in the tower, and um, yeah, you know the uh, the crippled Stark. See, I'm bad with the names. That's uh, I'm sorry. It's I, all right. I'm terrible with the names. Uh, Bran is that his name? Right there, right? Bran, sure. But uh, Bran sees that uh, Jon Snow's not actually the bastard of Ned, like we all thought. But he, right. he is a Stark still, right? That was Ned's sister? That, yeah, right. So his mother his is mo- Ned's sister. Right. Which is a reveal. And then she was abducted, allegedly, by Rhaegar Targaryen, who was the crown prince of the realm at the time. Right. The which- Mad King's son. So, um, that's Danny's family. You, right. So right. the, the, the inference, what you should, um, take away from that is that Rhaegar and Lyanna Stark are John's parents. And that's kind of been confirmed actually by the making of Thrones website. They have like, you can find that on the internet. If you Google it, they put up like a infographic that shows how, um, all the remaining characters are related to each other gotcha and it kind of like confirms even though the show didn't hard confirm because like the volume drops out right there when she like whispers something to ned to right. young ned mm-hmm. it's pretty much confirmed like Rhaegar and liana are the sports cast the sports cast are here gotcha the sports cast are here with jason concepcion from the ringer and also after the thrones let me ask you one ringer question and one nba question i'll let you go uh great real quickly um 
you were a writer at Grantland, and a you're yeah. now a writer at Ringer, and you're the first person we've had on who's worked at both. We had a great uh, relationship with so many Grantland writers, and still do, and I'm sure uh, we'll talk to Brian or Katie or David or whoever soon. But you got here first, so you get to be the first person to ask me, or f to, for me to be able to ask, how do you think at this point the ringer is distinguishing itself from what was Grantland. How do you think it's different? How do you think it's the same? And I'm sure, hopefully, how do you think it's better? It's different in the sense that the internet is is really different than even a year ago. The way people um, consume their stories, the way people um, interact with their stories, it's more mobile, uh, it's like a lot more Facebook. So, um, structurally, it's different in the way that people approach it. Um, it's the same in the in the sense that um, there's that still that sense of like creativity and the people like who have been hired are super super talented and like incredibly smart. Like in a, in the way that it, you just like are like man, I've got to like get on my game because everybody here is like really really really, really smart and not as Huh? It's still no assholes, right? Still the the number one rule, the no assholes. That rule. is the yeah. that's that is a rule. Um, <laughs> I have not encountered an asshole yet. <laughs> that's awesome. And then um, we're which Grantland didn't do. Um, I'm sure there's like other things like in the pipeline um, that will diversify the subject matter. Um, and in terms of being better, I think we're gonna. I don't want to speak for the site too much, but I think one of the things that um, we'd like to do is just like be able to react to stuff like faster. So it, right. to be a more comprehensive um, uh, entity of the internet, I think is what you'll see. And it's been like a great experience so far. Like it's been really fun. I've really enjoyed how the whole, it seems like whether it it's uh, someone from around or, um, uh, the TV show or from the website or a podcast, it seems like it's all kind of one big world. And you might kind of jump on this one podcast that we thought was a podcast hosted by Mallory. And it seems like just like any combination of the people who work uh, on one of the entities and maybe the Bill Simmons network uh, could appear together and everything seems to just be kind of integrating kind of in a pleasing way. You know, I think that, as a consumer, that's what I've enjoyed the most that, you know, like uh, for a good example is, you know, yesterday David Shoemaker posted his wrestling podcast and he hosted it with a writer from the TV show, you know, and it was just like yeah. those two worlds mixing kind of seamlessly and for the greater good of that podcast in that hour. And I just feel like as a consumer that it's been pleasing the way that that all is kind of fit in together. And I'm sure that's pleasing I, I as a worker as well. Yeah. So yeah, it's, been, it's been it's been a really exciting experience. You can find the Ringer, obviously it's theringer dot com, and you can find Jason on Twitter. He's at network with a three. Uh, I think is the best way to explain your handle. And he's yeah, got all kinds. Yeah, my Xbox Live gamer tag. And you can play him on Xbox as well by by going yeah. to there. And of course, one thing that he often tweets with, and we'll kind of end here, is he's a big NBA tweeter. Uh, lots of NBA knowledge there, which is good. And I always like to ask this question of people who, um, whether are on a beat or a big fan of something. 
it's the off season now. And, you know, to maybe the most novice of fans, the most interesting thing uh, might be just what's going to happen with Kevin Durant. Uh, but I'm guessing that you are interested in something a lot deeper than that. Although I'm sure we're talking about Kevin Durant. So that's a big thing. I'm sure you're really interested in finding <laughs> out where Kevin Durant goes, but in general, we can kind of end here. What are, what are the things you're going to be tracking closely during the NBA offseason? What are you really interested to see kind of play out as we work to October and the tip off of next, next season? That's just free agency. It's like the, the NBA has really become a year-round sport now. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but it's you know I, I would argue that um, in many ways, for the free agency period is more satisfying, like as a hardcore NBA fan, than it, than the regular season. Maybe it's because I'm a Knicks fan, and like we all, we are always like disappointing. But it's just um, yeah, I'm I'm like really excited to see what happens. I'm. Can't wait to see who like Dwight Howard snookers into paying him a lot of money. I'm excited to see what happens with Kevin Durant, even though I kind of feel like the consensus is that he'll he'll stay. Go back to yeah, yeah he'll go yeah. back to Oklahoma, Oklahoma City with the tier deal, the player option, you know, the LeBron James move. Right. Um but then again you never know. Like he's meeting with the Warriors and that's like that is almost like a super team. Like when you look at that, um, I'm just, yeah, I'm just really excited to, to see what happens in free agency. Were you happy? And I'm also excited. To, like, I'm also like <laughs> really fascinated by like, um, the various conspiracy theories that are like bubbling up around things that are going like, you know, like how old is Thon maker? Um, controversy is <laughs> like interesting to me as, as, um, as a piece of like internet fueled speculation, I find it interesting. Um, yeah, just like the the way the way we talk about and process the NBA right now is like writ large. It's very interesting to me. Was New Orleans a good spot for Buddy Heald to land? Was that kind of a perfect place for him? What's that? Was uh, New Orleans a good spot for Buddy Heald to land? Was that? It seems to me as kind of a, a, a more novice fan that. That's a backcourt he can kind of uh, jump into. And... I mean, they, they have, like, a lot. They have deeper problems than, like, a, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like they have a prime chip in and in Jonathan Sharks, who's a, a ringer. I talk a lot about this. They have, they have, like, a, you know, obviously Anthony Davis is, like, a superstar-level player. Right. And they need someone. They need, like, a front-court presence next to him. And... But he healed really like he's a shooter. Help them in that regard. Right. He's a shooter. Yeah. But he's got a big name and he's one of the more recognizable names in, in college basketball. Um I didn't love it. You're but so, okay. it's fun. Buddy Heald is, is interesting in that he's one of those guys that like the kind of like stodgy traditionalist is like, why can't we just reward like guys that have you know, that went to school for four years? I like Buddy Heald, like Buddy you know, like Let's, I think he's going to be good. Um, I, I don't. I'm no whatever. He can shoot. That's right. fun. Get That's you. good. Were you happy as a Knicks fan about the about the trade? You think uh, Rose can reinvent? The Derek, Rose, I'm I'm ambivalent about the trade. Um, I don't think it's a like a disastrous trade, but I also don't think it's um, really the right move. I think 
I mean, there's been so much talk about like tanking and the process and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, whether it's the right thing to do. Um, I think if you tank for one year, like what's the big deal? I think they should have tanked this year for, because they have their draft pick. They didn't have any picks um, this past draft that went by because of deals involving Bargnani and Mello. And now that those are finally off the books, I think, you know, if you look at, if you look around the NBA success, um, is predicated on finding players in the draft. You need to be there. Right. You can't just um, rely on free agency to do everything. Yeah, you know? the NHL is like that um, now too. What's that? I said the NHL is like that now too. You got to at some point. Yeah. you got to bottom out and get a top guy. You got to get Pat Kane or you know, like in Buffalo, we and I think that's we spent the whole year doing it. And it was worth it because we got Jack Eichel now. You know, it was worth it. That's so, what you have to do. Yeah. And I think like with a young player like Porzingis. I think you need to start focusing on players like in his age range. And I think and it's very tough. It's like you have Mello. Mello has no trade, which I'm not sure why they, you know, it's like they signed him to that basically so that to, to allay any kind of like criticism of when and if they do trade him. So that there's no, absolutely no question that it was his decision to get traded, which is like pretty craven, like from a, the perspective of front office, like to structure deals because you just don't want to get criticized. It's like ridiculous. Just make good deals in the first place, but whatever. Um, it's like, they're trying to serve two masters right now. They're trying to, they're, it seems like they're trying to kind of contend. Right. Do um, even New York though Rose rebuild. isn't a good player anymore mm-hmm. when they should be bottoming out, as you say, right. like they, sh- they should be like, okay, let's just develop Porzingis and suck and get a good draft pick, and then turn it around. We'll have a lot of money. Whatever. We'll see. Right. The next moves they make are the moves that that will dictate the direction that they're taking. Well, you can find Jason on The Ringer, and he writes about basketball or Game of Thrones or whatever it is that given day, theringer.com. You can also find him on HBO's After the Thrones, which is available in perpetuity in forever on uh, HBO Go or HBO yep. Now. Um, and you can watch it there if you're catching up on Game of Thrones. I highly recommend watching uh, the two together when you get to this season. And you can follow him on Twitter. He's at Network with a 3. And uh, we talk yeah. guitars and basketball and Game of Thrones and all kinds of stuff. And it's great to have you on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Anything else you wanted to mention uh, plug-wise? Uh, that's it. All right. Thanks, Jason. I really appreciate it. All right, I want to thank Jason for being on the podcast today. And I think I said before he came on that he's from Grantland, but of course he was, but now he's from The Ringer, not Grantland. Right, right. Because Grantland no longer exists. Right. Because, you know, ESPN. This music makes me wonder what we used to play. Because we used to have a totally different theme, and then like one day it just disappeared off the internet. Right. But all of these Final Fantasy fanfare things sound the same, essentially. And but that one. Not like what we used not to Not like play. what we used to have. So that must have been mislabeled as Final Fantasy fanfare. Who knows why we even play Final Fantasy Fanfare? You know what? I think I wanted something like, I think we said let's pick something nerdy. Really, it's a book club. Well, we said we wanted something really exciting sounding, like oh. almost like tongue in cheek, like oh, Dr- book dramatic. clubs are super yeah. exciting. So I think I just typed in Fanfare, and that's what came up. But interesting. Well, in a second, we're going to talk with Stephen Hyden, who is also from Grantland, and July is going to start writing for Uproxx. 
All right. Um, so that's a pretty big culture website, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. I'm always reading articles. That I see links there all the time on Facebook, that. yeah. So he'll be there, and his book is called Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, What Pop Music Rivalries Reveal About the Meaning of Life. So we'll talk to Stephen all about that in a second. Uh, now that that's done, we're going to focus on I'd Know That Voice Anywhere, my favorite NPR commentaries by Frank DeFord. And we're not going to do this for long because I'm going to clarify whether or not Frank's going to be on, and if he's not, we're going to move on. <laughs> you know, and it, it's not because it's not a worthwhile book, It's but the book is a collection of NPR shorts that he's done. Okay. So it's not new material or anything. It's not his memoir. It's not something that we're going to come on here week after week and say we read this unbelievable transcript from a NPR thing. Right. You know, we wanted to do this book because we wanted to talk to Frank again. So, so if he's not going to come on, we're going to move on. And what's next is what we always do at this time of year, and that is the book club book of the year. So. For the first time, let's talk about this for a little bit. Okay. So first of all, previous winners. We have Showtime. Or not Showtime. Sweetness, Sweetness. Yep. by Jeff Perlman. Then we had The Dream Team by Jack McCollum, which was awesome. Both of those books are awesome. Then we had The Masked Man's book, his wrestling book. Mm-hmm. And then we had last year, uh, and I still have it here actually, Console Wars by Blake J. Harris. Yeah. So those are the four winners, and it's been a good year. So when I will tell you that when I thought of what has been my favorite book this year, the first thing I thought of was Molly Knight's Dodger book. All right, yeah. Um, I don't know if that will win, but I thought of that one pretty quickly. We also had the the basketball book, the high school basketball players book. We had The Arm by Jeff Passan, which right, we've waited right, yep. years for. Um, those are some recent ones. We had the basically the sequel to Scorecasting, the Jeff Wertheim, or John Wertheim book. Right. We had um, a new Joe Piznanski book, the golf book. That's not winning, but we had that. Was the Expos book this year or was that last year? No, the Expos book last was last year. year. So there's a lot of contenders this year, mm-hmm. and I haven't given it enough thought to really say. No documentaries this year. No documentaries. Play some books. We did have... The CDs, the CD. Oh, uh, the Florentine. Yeah, Florentine and Jameson CD. That's right. We did do that for something different. I don't know that that will win either. Right. But we did do that. Um, there's a bunch of stuff, so we're going to have to take them all out and review them and talk about it. But I will say that the first thing that came to my mind was the Molly Knight book. book. So we'll see if that wins. All right, we're going to take a break, and we're going to finish up Your Favorite Band is Killing Me with uh, Stephen Hyden. <laughs> All right, our next guest is from Wisconsin and is a graduate of Wisconsin Eau Claire. He first joined us when uh, he was a music critic at Grantland. And uh, today he's working with Up Rocks and also has a new book that we've been reading in the book club uh, about some of the great rivalries in rock. Your favorite band is Killing Me. And he also has his own podcast. He was on talking about it last time, the Celebration Rock Podcast. He's nice enough to join us again. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Stephen Hyden. What's going on, Stephen? 
Not much. How, How are, are you? you? Doing pretty good. So I, I feel like we're going to end up just talking about Pearl Jam. No, you know, I, I feel thought... Like whenever I'm on, I thought about I that. Like whenever, whenever I'm on your podcast, I feel like we just talk about Pearl Jam for like two hours. I know, I know. And I thought about that problem. <laughs> and I said, you know, the best way to deal with it is probably just skip the Nirvana and Pearl Jam part of the book altogether. Because I feel like... <clears throat> I feel like we would just kind of get, like you said, into just this whole of talking about it and people would miss a point. They'd think it's a book about Pearl Jam and Nirvana. It's certainly not. <laughs> uh, it's up to you, man. I'm, I'm here for you. So whatever you want to talk about, <laughs> I, uh, I, I am open. Well, I like, and for the record, I like talking about Pearl Jam for two hours. You know, I'm, I'm not <laughs> complaining, but uh, I feel like... Uh, I think I've, this is my third time on the on the podcast, and we've had very extensive uh, Pearl Jam uh, conversations. Well, I think the one time you were on specifically after reviewing the uh, maybe it was the Wrigley Field show, maybe I think. Yeah, yeah. So I think that, that was like thirteen. Was that was that two thousand thirteen? I think the the rain show was. Yes, that, was that it was the summer of two thousand thirteen. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, and then you were at a show after that, I think, when they played an album. Were you at the No Code or the Yield show? I was at the Yield show the in Yield Milwaukee. Show. That was 2014. Yeah, that was cool. I finally got to be at one of those. I was at the Binaural show, so that was pretty cool. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm bummed they're going to be at Wrigley again in August, and I'd like to go to that, but um, I'm probably going to be moving right around that time, so I don't think I'll be able to make it. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to go to Fenway, so. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the book a little bit. The book's called Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, and we've been talking about this book almost since the beginning of you being on the show. Like, you were kind of, like, maybe getting into it, and then the next time you're maybe in the middle of it. And I will have to say that it wasn't necessarily what I expected when I opened it. I think what I kind of enjoyed the most about it was I expected – very much a kind of more of a play-by-play and blow-by-blow of the rivalries where in reality it was more of the rivalries kind of setting up some kind of other kind of essay or point uh, that you wanted to make about an experience in your life or a view of the world that you have or something like that. And I guess I didn't necessarily expect that, but I certainly enjoyed enjoyed it more and it, it maybe even felt a little bit like uh like a chuck klosterman book a little bit and i'm sure you i know that's a good friend of yours maybe you'd take that like a compliment but um have you been getting that comparison and, and also have you been getting kind of a surprised reaction like i had where people thought it might be more of a blow by blow as opposed to being more of a uh just an all-encompassing um kind of what comes to your mind based on that rivalry yeah, I mean, I think some people have been surprised. You know, I I think based on the feedback I've gotten, it's mainly pleasantly surprised, you know, kind of like your experience reading the book. There's certainly people who were not pleasantly surprised by that, just based on some of the reviews I've seen online. Uh, you know, some people wanted just more of a straightforward accounting of, of the rivalries. And I guess the reason I didn't do that is because I feel like a lot of the rivalries I talked about in the book have already been covered in that way really well, like, elsewhere. You know, like, to do that, for instance, like, for the Beatles and Rolling Stones, like, 
there are whole books written right. about the Beatles and Rolling Stones rivalry, you know, so to go through all the beats of that again felt like that would be redundant and it would get boring maybe if you were, you know, reading that kind of book. So I just thought, like you said, that I wanted the book to work on multiple levels where you could read it and you could get good information about the rivalries and it could work on that kind of, you know, basic, you know, level. But then that there would be other things in the book maybe that uh, would be more surprising, maybe, uh, you know, kind of drawing connections between the rivalries and, like, other things that were happening in the culture at the time and, and using that to kind of explain, like, why people cared about it so much and, like, why it resonates, you know, because the theory of the book, or, like, you know, the idea of it is that, the, you know, when people get really passionate about culture and they get into a situation, like, where they're comparing two artists against each other, that some of it has to do with music, you know, and having preferences for one artist over another, but I also think that a lot of times there are sort of bigger ideas that these artists come to represent. And it's not just about the music, it's about sort of arguing about that idea. So, like, you know, when I write about Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix, yeah, you can argue about who's a better guitar player, but I also feel like, in some way, that's also talking about that old rock and roll idea about burning out versus fading away. You know, that Jimi Hendrix is this guy who's always going to be a romantic figure to people because... He was brilliant for a couple of years, and then he then he passed away. And he, he's always going to kind of have that image to him. Whereas Eric Clapton is a guy who's obviously had a much longer life and a longer career. And you know, based on your opinion of him, it seems like the consensus view of Clapton is that he was you know sort of brilliant in the '60s and '70s, and he's sort of gotten more boring as as he's gotten old as, as he's gotten older and. And that's hurt, his, that's hurt his reputation in a way with a lot of people. So I just thought that was an interesting thing to, to talk about in the context of that rivalry. So that's something I do uh, throughout the book. And you asked about the, the Klosterman comparison. I've seen that a little bit. Um, and I think that's a natural comparison to make. I mean, we're both white males from the Midwest uh, who are interested in rock music and... Uh, Obviously, we were both associated with Grantland, so there's that, too. Oh, yeah, I didn't think uh, that. Yep. And, and, and I do take it as a compliment. You know, he he's a writer I like a lot, and uh, so if someone's going to compare me to him in a positive way, I, I would definitely take that as a compliment. Yeah, you mentioned how in the book you kinda look, you're talking about culture, and one thing that was really exciting to me is every year when they have this video music award show, I tweet – as a public service announcement, politely to direct people away from that show and to instead watch the 1992 version. Because it is, as you mentioned many times in the book, it's just the greatest video, or forget video, it's the greatest award show on TV, I think, it's in my lifetime. I mean, it's yeah, man. unbelievably yeah, good. I, well, yeah. yeah, that is sort of like a running joke in the book. Like, I make several you, you references several, yeah. to that award show. And... Uh, I sort of like make fun of myself for how much I talk about it because it's just something I like to refer to. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons to love that award show. You know, I mean, there's incredible bands that played on that show, obviously. You had Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Dozen Roses. And, but I also love the fact that you had 
like Def Leppard on that show, and you had Bobby Brown on that show, and you Eric had Brian Clinton. Adams. And yeah. You had like a lot of different kinds of people that would probably that were probably never in the same room again after that. You know, it was sort of like a crossroads type show where you had this new wave of people coming in, but you still had like people from the eighties that were still kind of hanging on at that point, and they were about to drop off, but they were still big enough where they could be on an award show like that. Like Brian I Adams. Mean, the, 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 what's that? Like Brian Adams, maybe, fills in that category. Oh, yeah. yeah. Definitely. And he was, you know, he had that song, Everything I Do, I Do It For You, you know, that Robin Hood, yep. Prince of Thieves song. So that was a huge hit at the time, but that was probably like one of his last kind of big hits like that. Um, and it's always amazing, too, to talk about that award show to people now because, you know, just to have actual rock bands on the VMAs um, seems so incredible now. You know, it seems like it, it seems like that it, that happened like in the 1890s, not the 1990s. You know, uh, like I think about, you know, again, not to bring it back to Pearl Jam, but like the following year, the 93 VMAs, you had Pearl Jam and Neil Young right. playing together. Yep. And that seems even more incredible. You'd have Pearl Jam, you know, they come out, they play... Animal. A song that yeah, was they played Animal. Un- animal un- yep. Unreleased at the time. That was the first time I ever heard that song. Yep. And then they bring out Neil Young to play Rockin' in the Free World. So it's like 10 minutes, probably more than 10 minutes of like continuous guitar music on the VMAs. I mean, that just seems unbelievable that well, that happened at one point. Um, so, yeah, that kind was of fun a, to talk about. There, for sure. There's kind of a story there with Pearl Jam. We'll just say, that, I'll tell you, and you might already know this, but in 92... Pearl Jam wanted to play a song called Sonic Reducer, uh, yeah. a cover song. And MTV, I guess, right. threw a fit over them wanting to play Sonic Reducer. So they kind of decided that they would play Jeremy as requested, but they were going to play it so well and so hard that they'd never, no one would ever be able to tell them what to play again. And then at the very, very end when uh, Vedder drops the mic, he picks it up and he says, I don't need no mom and dad, and that's a reference to a line in Sonic Reducer. So then... Kind right. of to their prophecy, obviously, then the next year they told MTV, yeah, we're coming, we're playing Animal, we're playing Rock in the Free World, or we're not coming. So I guess it worked. Right. Also that year, Howard Stern did his drop-in, his infamous Fart Man uh, oh, yeah. was on that show in 92 as well. Um, so it was just a great show. It had everything, and I was super happy for it to be uh, mentioned over and over again in the book. <laughs> That's great. I also really enjoyed the Madonna versus Cindy Lauper chapter chapter because I've always been a huge uh, Cindy Lauper fan. I understand that she has a much briefer window of greatness, uh, but I've always thought that her top four were just as good as Madonna's top four, um, and it was just interesting to just even to see you kind of group her with her. Because, you know, I think now uh, people just – the level of stardom, I don't even think people realize it was as close as it was back in that 84 time when uh, Ain't That Unusual came out and the rock and wrestling. The rock and wrestling thing almost kind of launched MTV to some degree and launched the WWF really uh, in a national yeah. level. Yeah. And – People yeah, kind of yeah Cindy Lauper was like a, a, a huge star yeah. at that time. I mean, in a way, I feel like, I mean, 
I feel like there were periods, maybe like a couple of weeks at a time, where Cindy Lauper was bigger than Madonna, and then maybe Madonna would be bigger than Cindy Lauper, but it was like really close. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like Cindy Lauper too. I love, I love her big hits, and I think she's so unusual. That's, that's still, I think, a really great record. Yeah. Um, and that was sort of, you know, another opportunity again, like to talk about that rivalry, but also talk about sort of this bigger issue, like when people talk about music being dated. You know, that's always like a thing that we automatically assume to be negative, you know, like when we associate, like, well, that sounds so 80s or that sounds so 90s, like music that gets really closely associated with a with a particular time period. And that's one thing that maybe happens to Cindy Lauper is that people talk about Girls Just Want to Have Fun as being like sort of a quintessential 80s sounding song. But, you know, I kind of come at it the other way where if you can create a song that becomes emblematic of an entire era where, like, you can play it. And even if you were born, like, 20 years later, like, you can recognize it as being representative of a particular place and time. I mean, that seems like the highest thing that a song could do, you know, like, to signify a whole era. You know, I think that says something kind of great about those songs. Um, And... Uh, but yeah, I, it is interesting because Madonna obviously uh, was able to sort of change herself enough, her, her music and her look, to continue to kind of spin it forward right. in a way that Cyndi Lauper wasn't. I mean, her initial look with like the with the skirts and the red hair and all that stuff, it was so iconic right away that she kind of got fixed in that. Although, you know, at the same time, you know, Cyndi Lauper still tours and... She had a huge Broadway show hit. Yeah, I think she had a huge Kinky Boots. She like wrote all the music. It's a Broadway play. I don't know much about it, but I know it was a pretty decent hit on Broadway. And now it tours. Yeah, she wrote all the music for that. Uh, So she's had a little. Yeah, she got a huge fan base too. I mean, so she's still done well uh, for sure. It's not like she fell off the face of the planet or anything. Yeah, and she um she has this really cool record that I just discovered on Apple Music where she has a bunch of duets of her songs with, uh, I think, like Natalie Merchant and her do Time After Time. And there's a really cool version of All Through the Night with um, Shaggy. Um, Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, Yeah. A couple other things about the book, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, I kind of thought you let Kanye West off the hook a little bit. (laughs) Yeah? Yeah. I just, I don't know. I just felt like you were a little, I felt like you, how do I want to put this? I just feel like there's just no excuse for deciding it's okay for you to interrupt someone's award speech by walking up onto the stage and then like saying someone else should have won it. I I don't know. It just seemed pretty inexcusable and it's kind of like, oh, but no, I kind of felt like you let him off the hook a little bit, I thought. Well, one of the things I talk about in there is how I, I mean, I feel like award shows are ridiculous and unnecessary. So, like, to say that awards are, you need to be respected in this way, I guess I'm naturally inclined to sort of go against that. Like, I I would be more of a sort of proponent of, like, chaos at award shows. You know, like, when, when stuff goes wrong, I feel like that's more interesting than sort of the pageantry of it and it going strictly according to plan. I guess I also have to say that I have a weak spot for rock stars 
who act like in a larger-than-life way, even if that means being obnoxious. Like, I would never defend Kanye West as being like a polite guy who does the right thing, but I would defend him as an interesting pop star in an era where there isn't a ton of people that are sort of willing to deliberately do things that they know will make people angry. You know, like, we're living in a pretty safe period right now um, with, with pop stars uh, towing the line. And he's still the guy that will not tow the line, you know, even if it means pissing off a lot of people. So, like, on that level, um, I am a sucker for what he does. I mean, when I was on the last podcast I was on, we both talked about Axl Rose. You know, we both love Axl Rose. Axl Rose has done so many things in his career that are obnoxious uh, that if you knew him, you know, you'd think he was an asshole. But because he's a rock star, there's something kind of awesome about him starting riots in St. Louis or writing a song like One in a Million or, you know, any number of things that he's done in his career. So, like, you know, so, so to me, Kanye West is really the only person right now who's like that. Well, hey, so that's why I defend him. If you want to piss on the Elmo, cool. If you want to make people wait three hours for you, or like Kanye West made people wait till five in the morning at Coachella because Pearl Jam wouldn't get off the stage for him or whatever happened. Uh, any of those things, cool. But you're going to bully a girl who you know very well you can bully because she's a little white girl. I just don't think it's cool, and I just think the guy's an asshole. But... Um, but like, okay, okay, but you think, but like Axl Rose storming off the stage in St. Louis and causing a riot, you think that's acceptable, but like... Not necessarily. Uh, no, I don't West, think starting like, a riot is microphone acceptable. Microphone away from Taylor. Like, I mean, I mean, come on, like Taylor Swift, you want to say he's bullying her, she's like a multi, you know, she's like a huge pop star. Right, but okay? not necessarily, that was don't just at think, the beginning of her, she was not the star she is now. I mean... She was still a pretty big star, you know. Like I, I don't know. I, I don't feel like that. I certainly don't feel like that hurt her career. I think that probably helped her career a lot. Um, I mean, I don't know. I just look at this as an extension of show business. You know, this is stuff that people. You know, this is all about just creating noise and publicity. You know, so uh, I don't know. I just. I, I, I don't I, I don't cry for Taylor Swift, I guess is what I'm saying. I think that she came out okay yeah. in there. And I found that to be a much more interesting award show moment than like than most award shows like where nothing ever interesting ever happens. I mean this is something that happened seven years ago and we're still talking about it. Right. Uh so on that level like, like I'm not saying he's not an asshole, by the way. He is an asshole. But he's an interesting asshole, and I find him endearing for that. So, so on that level, I do agree with you. Like, I, I, I would never say he's a nice guy, or even that he's like, you know, sane. You know, but I like his insanity. You know, I, I appreciate him. Well, this because I feel like that—that's part of his job to be insane. You know, that's what we want from people like this. This is what makes the book great because every chapter is potentially a debate like this, and I kind of went a little further to the other side to kind of make that point. The book is called Your Favorite Band is Killing Me. Uh, what Pop Music Rivalries Reveal About the Meaning of Life by Stephen Hyden. We've been uh, reading it in the book club, and you can get it, obviously, on 
ebook format or you can go to the bookstore and buy the regular format and of course you can catch the celebration rock podcast that's also on itunes and it comes out every monday um some really great stuff there every week if you want to listen to rock i also caught a really cool uh podcast that you did Stephen, with some dudes uh you guys talked about vitology yeah and since i've checked out some other episodes of that i thought that's a pretty cool show you, so you can find that i think it's called the greatest records or something along those lines. And you can call the great album, the great albums. And you can also find, uh, Steven on Twitter. Um, and, uh, he is there as well on Twitter. What's your handle? Uh, to Steven underscore Hayden. And anything else you want to throw in plug wise? Uh, I think that's it. I'm, uh, like you mentioned, I'm, I'm starting at up rocks next week. So you can, I'll be writing regularly there starting that awesome so we'll be reading you in up rocks checking out the podcast uh make sure you get the book again it's called your favorite band is killing me and it's all kinds of chapters of potential debates like we just had about kanye west and uh taylor swift we kind of avoided the pearl jam and nirvana one but that's in there and there's oasis and blur which i didn't really even know about because i didn't know much about blur uh not really being uh, from england or a fan of necessarily that subculture back in the 90s um there's some some really cool stuff in the book i really enjoyed it and uh make sure you i told you that axel rose would get in shape and sound good by the way last time you were on and i was kind of right about that he's in shape and yeah he you sounds know, pretty good yeah well and well, yeah the, the tour the gnr tour just launched yes they've and done he's actually tour. been really good with acdc yeah. i got it you know i got my cap i told you he'd be it's, ready uh, I I can admit when I'm wrong, he's been doing about as well as you could hope for at this time. So he's even looking a little bit slimmer. Yeah, he so, got himself man, in shape, yeah. I have no idea how long this will last. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, he's even going for on. Now, I, for now, I'm tipping my cap to you and to Axel and to all the true believers. So, yeah, I'm hoping... Uh, I hope there's a fall tour. Hopefully, they can keep it together in the summer because uh, I'm not going to be able to make it to the summer tour. But I'm hoping they hit maybe some smaller markets. I live in the Twin Cities, uh, so I'm hoping they'll come here in the fall and I can go see it. So we'll see. Awesome. Well, thanks for doing this. Uh, your favorite band is killing me. Really enjoyed the book, uh, and I'm sure we'll talk to you soon. All right, man. Sounds good. Thanks. All right, I want to thank Stephen Hyden and Jason Concepcion for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can find this podcast and last week's podcast with Adrian Dater and Taz Mellis on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find the podcast on Stitcher and iTunes and wherever podcasts are downloaded. You can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters and at Sports, and you can email us anytime at thesportscasters at gmail.com. All right, one last thing for me this week. Uh, Orange is the New Black came out not too long ago uh, with its new season on Netflix, so we've been kind of uh, not watching it as fast as some people do, but uh, we were about a little better than halfway through the new season. I know when it came out. It came out June 18th because it came out the Friday after my daughter was born, which is June 16th. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah um, 
So we're eight episodes in, and the one question I always have after every episode, and, and I don't know if it's an oversight by me or if it's something they're purposely vague about, but the main character, Piper, was kind of like a white-collar... Why is she still in prison? Yes. Wasn't she doing like 18 months? Yeah. Or like something ridiculous? Like, short? what is the real time of this? Right. Because I, I've, how have they gotten this far into it, and she's still in prison? And not only that... If she was only doing like 18 months, and that might even be long. It might have been like 13 months. It was like a really short sentence. Why is she getting into so much shit? Like, keep your nose down. Right. Like, the very first season, she's getting in fistfights with and they're uh, trying to make, the meth heads. I guess and, they're trying to make the point that prison breaks you. Well, and boy, through, through her, does right? it break her quick. Right. Like, that's the one part of the show that I really can't buy is like. And the thing is, they didn't need her to be in prison to keep the show going, I don't think. Like, no. Especially like last season. Which I think was the third, right? Is this the fourth? Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, she was barely. It was barely about her. I mean, there, it was like her underwear scheme was her main plot line, right? And that's. But other than that, I mean, there, it was, the show was about a lot of stuff besides Piper. So right, or uh, the underwear thing is still going on, and that to me, like that risk or whatever. Like I just, I don't get that risk. I don't get the risk of. Uh, she makes a lot of enemies on the show for someone yeah. that's got a short stay. Now, I thought season three was the weakest. Is this... I'd have to remember. Do you, I just... I don't remember. I couldn't tell you exactly why because I didn't watch it in a year. But I remember thinking that when, as the girls were running into the pond and like that was mm. the end of the season, thinking yeah. like that was a weak season for this show. Yeah, I would agree with that. So do you think that this season has been better than that? Because you're a lot further along it's, than I am. It's much more exciting, I okay. suppose. The weird thing is, if you remember in the first couple seasons, they would show a character. They kind of focus each episode on one character, show their backstory and right. how they got I into, like that. into jail. I like the flashbacks. Yeah, and I kind of like that too. But they're doing it again this year, but they don't seem like they take them far enough. Like, Not as effective. Well, they show the flashback of the character, but they don't show what they did to get into jail every time. Like I, unless I'm just not remembering these right, but the the best one was the one with the bank robber. The girl who eventually drove off in the van and Oh, the one with cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Her whole backstory is like a bank robber, it's unbelievable. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So good. Yeah, that was that was that ending of that season was kind of awesome. Like, Here's what I'll say about this show. It's the best co-ed show out there right now. Yeah, I think we talked about it. It off has got to be the best thing that you can enjoy with a girlfriend or a wife. Yeah, I think we talked about it off the air last week. That girls love it, and it's plenty entertaining for guys. Sure, there's just a lot there for both. It's nowhere near like Breaking Bad or The Sopranos, which or... are sort of men heavy. You got to convince them to the violence and the swearing. Sure, yeah, stereotypically, yeah. Right, but I mean, as far as like on my scale, like where they're going right, to end it's up not as good. all the time. This this will probably be a top twenty show. That feels right. I mean, it'll be one of the. I might not watch twenty shows all the way to the end, so I mean that. It's probably a, it's a very good show. It's probably not great. I feel like I'm in it till the end, though. I'm in it to the end too. And again, like I said, it'd probably be a little bit higher on both of our wives' lists than ours. I would yeah, that's guess. Probably right. But I enjoy watching it with her. Yep. Like I think about the shows that my wife loves. She loves Bachelorette. I have almost no interest in it. <laughs> I watch a bit here and there. Yeah, you guys fit into the stereotypical man. Right. Very, you watch men, very men well. shows. And, and we right. have two TVs in our living room because of it. Right. Because so often I can just put a sporting event on with no volume and she can watch whatever she wants. But Do you have a version of 
a sh- like well she watched the wire was that a- no too violent my version of that that i think i can get michelle into because it's a comedy is silicon valley like at first she had no desire to watch that but i think she's caught bits and pieces of it one thing for me and, and that I, show's great i, I like silicon valley a lot as well i thought it had a really strong season this year it does annoy me that like like it's a little bit unrealistic with all the negative things that happen well like what's his name? Mike Judge, and right? I guess it's a running gag at this point. Well, but... Mike Judge did say they can't win. Like, right? They, if if they, they win, if they're successful, the show's over. Like, we but I'd like to see how they react to success. to a little bit of money, to not living in that house. To maybe that would be a good way to end the series. I'd like to see that. Like you know, the last season, let them have their success. See how they. They, I mean, let them have success with their platform, but screw it up some other way. Like, Ehrlich would still screw it up having all that money. He already had. Ehrlich screwing up the kids' money is one of the funniest <laughs> things. It was a really good season, a really strong season. Yeah, this, those two shows are great. One thing about shows, I can watch them a lot quicker than I alone than I can with Tammy. Yeah. So sometimes there'll be a show that I think I could get her into, but I just don't want to because I want to kind of bull through it. Yep. I did that with Daredevil. And then my wife got into it, so I had to watch the next like, season. With I was me. thinking about Roadies, which is a new show that I watched on Showtime this week. And I was like, oh, she might. And I don't know how much I like it. I've only seen one episode so far. But, uh-huh. like, in the. They played Giving to Fly in the first episode. It's by Cameron Crowe and Judd Apatow are the people behind it. Oh, okay. This is the one I knew I wanted to give a try. It's about roadies. Mm-hmm. Well, like, Judd Apatow does a lot. He did that love show, too, yeah, right? Yeah, which me and Tammy love that. That was a really good co-ed show, too. We started Freaks and Geeks. We watched one episode of that. Oh, so what, so good. Once Orange is the New Black is done, we'll go. We'll double back to Freaks and Geeks, and then maybe we'll jump into Love. Freaks and Geeks is so good. And Love is really good, too. And both of those were Tammy and Steve. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, Hall of Famers. Yep. Freaks and Geeks and Love. Uh, but um, what was my Roadies. Point? Roadies. Yeah, I just don't know if I want her to be into it because I want to be able to kind of blow through it. Mm-hmm. You know, right now we're already backed up. Big Brother's going on. We love watching Big Brother together every summer. We got to do that three hours a week. You know, plus we're not normally we'd be done with Orange is the New Black by now. We're on like episode three. Yeah. You know, so that's a dilemma for me sometimes. But anyway, one last thing for me today. So Bill Simmons HBO show finally debuted. And it's called Any Given Wednesday. And it's a half an hour show. And I will say that overall I enjoyed it. Um, I know that a problem with it is going to be that he's going to talk about way too much basketball than I want to hear. Right. And that's always going to be a problem with Bill Simmons. I love his work. I enjoy him as a writer. Um, And I've enjoyed – I followed his career really. And I won't stop following his career. Uh, but he's always talked about more NBA than I've wanted to. Um, it's interesting. Uh, one of the parts of the show this week was that Ben Affleck was on. And Ben Affleck and Simmons just kind of talked and bitched about the Tom Brady situation, as you'd expect two Boston dudes to bitch about it. Sure. And Affleck was dropping a bunch of F-bombs. And like it got killed kind of in the media. Like People were like getting on his case. And like to me... I loved it because it was like I didn't feel like they were trying to be too cool. Like, look at us. We're on HBO. We can swear. It just kind of felt like the way two guys would talk about sports. Yeah, and we talk about this sometimes. It felt natural to me. I don't know. The media can kind of be behind on things. And, like, you and I are both podcast fans, obviously, and that's – 
you get that on Adam Carolla's podcast. You get the swearing. I mean, they do two clean shows a week now or whatever, but that's how people talk. Anna Ferris has a podcast, and she just swears constantly. You wouldn't expect that from a tiny little blonde girl, but that's just when people have a open mic and maybe not necessarily like an immediate response from an audience, they're more likely to talk like they would just in their house. I don't know. Maybe the people I've grown up around are low-brow, but swearing has always been a very natural part of conversation. Especially yeah, you, you when can you're, tell when it feels especially when you're being casual. You can tell when it feels forced. And like you said, I mean, I trust that if you're saying it. That's just what I would say is that to me it felt like the way two guys would sit down. I mean, they were literally sitting down at a table with fake glasses of water in front of them. You know, and when they got to Tom Brady, Ben started swearing about it. He also had Charles Barkley on the show, which is a really great, smart first guest because Barkley's always interesting. Yeah. And then kind of in between, there was a few essays, video essays that Simmons, one was about LeBron James, one was about Steph Curry having bad endorsement deals. It wasn't bad. I like the show overall. I'm excited to keep watching it. One more thing I want to mention before we go. I want to recommend a podcast. Okay. Uh, Kyle Brandt is the executive producer of the Jim Rome Show. Yes. And he has a podcast called 20 Questions. It's awesome. Uh, Jeff Perlman good friend of our show, was one of the guests. That's literally it, 20 questions? He asks 20 questions and he scores them. <laughs> yes or no. And sometimes, or correct or incorrect. And sometimes the person is answering correctly, but he'll be wrong. You know, like, it'll be a question that doesn't have a right answer. It's just an opinion. Right. Sure. And then he'll say, nope, that's the wrong answer. That's a cool format. What are the you know, like, then, like one of the questions was, uh, it's about an hour. Oh, really? One of the questions was, who is the best... NFL coach to watch sideline reactions. Harbaugh. And, well, he's not a coach anymore. Oh, right, right. He's in Michigan. So somebody, I think the answer was... Uh, I meant the other Harbaugh. <laughs> someone gave an answer, and it was a good one, and he said, no, the answer is Jim Caldwell, because he's dead. And when they go to him, he looks like a dead person on the sideline. Oh, okay. Whatever. He was funnier and wittier about sure. it than me. The point is, is like... The guy gives a real impassioned, logical, funny reason to who it would be, and he's like, no, incorrect. Right. You know, like and it's it. a competition. Like, it. like Schefter, you know, like at the beginning of the show, they'll say – they'll play everyone who's been on. I'm Adam Schefter. I went 11 for 20. I'm Jeff Perlman. Okay. I went 14 for 20. You know. I like it. Uh, it's a really cool show. How many uh, have they done? Do you know? I think they're done about five. So okay. if you want to jump in now, you're not crazy behind or anything. Sure. Uh, it's really good. I wish I would have thought of it. <laughs> 